Hi, I'm Georgia Graham and I'm a writer, editor and pretty much retired model. This is Threads of Conversation, a show where I talk to creative people about their life and career via eight items of clothing. Today, my guest is Lauren Sherman, one of the fashion industry's most respected journalists. Lauren cut her teeth at Forbes before moving on to publications such as Fashionista.com, Lucky Magazine and Business of Fashion, where she spent seven years as one of their chief correspondents. A few months ago, Lauren announced her departure from Business of Fashion, joining the newsletter startup Puck as their first fashion writer. Lauren now publishes a weekly Puck newsletter, Line Sheet, a mixture of industry analysis and piping hot tea. As a journalist, her beat is explaining how the business works, who's spending money where, and what it all means. She's one of my favourite fashion writers, and I continue to learn so much from her work. Whether you work in fashion or simply enjoy getting dressed, I can guarantee you'll learn something from her too. Lauren, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So, let's start with your first piece, uh, which you're actually wearing. So, I chose a pair of... I don't know if they're, I call them grayish. They're like brownish, tannish, gray corduroys. Very thin whale from The Gap. I'm not exactly sure when they are from because I bought them on Poshmark for, I think, $22 or something. But especially my senior, fresh, junior and senior year of high school dressed in a lot of Gap and had Gap corduroys and Gap cargo pants that I used to wear with New Balance sneakers. Yeah, they've sort of become my at-home uniform when I'm at home writing or wearing run or running errands or whatever. And it's very much the same thing I wore in high school, which is like a gray T-shirt, a necklace, and a pair of Birkenstocks or a pair of New Balance with them. So tell me a bit about sort of young Lauren. What were you like as a teenager? Um, were you always interested in fashion? What were your earliest memories? Or was there a person, a parent, a teacher, someone who was really stylish, who had a big influence on you? Yeah, so my parents, <laughs> they were both retail buyers. So in the 70s and 80s and before that, if you worked at a store you usually also bought product for that store. So my parents did not. My dad was a college dropout. My mom eventually went to college, but was not in college when she met my dad. And they worked at this denim store in Columbus, Ohio, where they met called Levitation, which was, I assume, a play on the word Levi's. And this would have been like late 70s. So I was born in 82. I just remember them being really interested in brands. My dad was like a huge polo fan and my mom loved Calvin Klein and Halston. And so I was just always really obsessed with it. I remember being five, six, and then definitely getting into my teenage years, really caring about what I was wearing and what that communicated. And I also really liked writing from a very young age. And my mom let me start reading some fashion magazines around 10. Mm -hmm. And she let me buy this magazine called Sassy, which at the time was run by this woman, Jane Pratt, who she actually just launched a new project. But um, it was, she was like, you can read Sassy because it's a feminist magazine. It's not going to be like how to make a boy like you or whatever. It's smart. Then Jane Pratt went on to watch this magazine, Jane, and the writers there were so interesting. And now I know a lot of them, and it's crazy because I still think of them as 
being like super famous. As my interest in fashion developed, I realized that, oh, this would actually be a really fun thing to write about and I wanted to be a fashion news writer. I gave myself until 27 to get a staff writing job somewhere and I ended up doing it by, I think 23 or 24 and that is every every stage you have all these hurdles you have to cross but the thing that I realized probably by the time I was 30 was oh if you just stick around and you're not a jerk and you work hard most people drop off mm. so what I realized was like hard work and persistence and all that stuff because I have to work I don't have anybody helping me I never had anyone helping me with like my rent or anything like that and so I didn't want to have to take a kind of dead end or job that I thought was boring in order to be able to live and like pay rent and stuff. So my goal was always, well, if I work really, really hard and I show up more than everyone else, it'll pay off. And it, it has. What you really need to succeed is some sort of desire, like chip on your shoulder, wherever that came from. I see that with a lot of really successful executives that they have something and maybe they had everything handed to them, but that's what the chip on their shoulder is. Like they want to prove that they're better than that, but you have to be a striver. And yeah, I mean, I definitely think feeling like I wasn't on, I never feel like I'm on the inside of anything does allow me to have a little bit of distance. And there are a lot of brands that I really love as a consumer, but if I'm like, looking at a show they're doing or I don't know writing about their business I really can take myself out of it because I also think if if something's not exactly right if someone doesn't address it how are you going to ever get better and that's how these brands kind of you know a lot of times that has to do with the downfall of like people don't tell them when something isn't good mm. Well, we've been talking a lot about your career, so let's move on to the next piece. So this is the piece that reminds you of your career. So tell us what you've chosen for this. I don't even remember. Oh, I said my Chanel bag. So I had this vision, and I'm not that woo-woo, but I do, like, kind of believe in manifestation and things. You live in L.A. now, I feel like I do live in L.A. <laughs> I've, I have always believed, like, if you think you can do something, you can probably do it. I see all these people who get away with that. So I figured I might as well try too. And I do have this distinct memory of being like 11 or something and imagining myself living in New York City and having an apartment with no furniture and owning a black Chanel bag. And I did, I bought, I think I was 27 when I bought it. I bought it when I got my job as an editor at, at Fashionista and it was way too much money. I really couldn't afford it, but I had enough on my credit card that I could charge it. And it was just like a black lambskin flat bag with gold hardware. And it was some special edition. So it had all these tchotchkes all over it, these charms. It's funny cause like I would have, that would have been mid nineties and the Chanel handbags really only became a real business in the early nineties. So the fact that I had already decided that that was the thing that I was that I was going to do for myself is funny but it was fashionista was a job that I had wanted for a long time I had emailed the guys who ran the company several times being like I, I will think I should work here and when I got it it was super satisfying and it's also really nice that I still wear it like I don't I own two or three other designer bags but they're not 
they're not of that level and that bag now is like eight thousand dollars which is so insane to me but but yeah it's um it reminds me of like the first time when I felt like I hit I hit a threshold that I was excited about I mean you're always constantly trying to get to the next level but that was a moment when I was like oh this is a job that I'm actually interested in and proud of having and the bag is like representative of that Mm. It's funny how handbags are such like a. I remember when um, back when I was modeling my first Paris Fashion Week, um, I got booked on a Givenchy exclusive when Ricardo was there. Oh yeah, and they sent me this insane bag. Like oh, I have God. no idea how much it's worth, and it was honestly I felt like Emily in Paris, which is so I, embarrassing. I, but I love that show. It's <laughs> but um, you know it was that thing. I was like, oh my God, my fashion dreams are coming true, and then I got cancelled on the morning of the show, and so I have oh, this no. bag, and it has. I can't I, I should probably sell it but then I can't quite but it has so many good memories and so many bad ones and it's I, I find it so interesting resale of handbags is huge right now they also carry so much like emotional value for people yeah um talk us through your career um I mean people can look you up on LinkedIn they can yeah. easily find it online but give us a quick whistle stop tour of your jobs leading up to where you are now okay so the job out of college was at this lifestyle concierge company called Quintessentially, which still exists, but I had an internship. They had a magazine. I had an internship there in the UK in college where I studied abroad and they were like, you're really nice. And I knew how to code HTML, which sounds fancier than it is. I definitely couldn't do anything like Ruby on Rails or anything that people actually use now, but I could do light HTML coding. I could do a little graphic design and I could write a bit. So they hired me to be their editorial assistant and I moved there after college. That was super interesting. That's when I first got a taste of what like luxury and, and how to write about what rich people do, that type of thing. They had a newsletter even back then that I would help edit and produce and things. And then moved to New York, really wanted to work somewhere like Teen Vogue or Jane or Harper's Bazaar. Wanted to work at a big glossy. In Interviewed at a bunch of different places, ended up interviewing at Forbes.com to be a lifestyle editor, which was essentially, it was pre-social media, but I would say it was close to being a social media editor. I was like trying to get traffic to the content. And it really did kind of change the trajectory of my career. The managing editor there was like, you should read this book by the, the Wall Street Journal's fashion reporter, Terry Agins. And it, I read it and thought, oh, she's literally the only one covering it from the side. This is so much more interesting. I'm not a great copywriter. I'd much rather be writing, doing reporting. And I had figured that out already. And so I really just kind of dove into it. And I worked at Forbes for four years. Then I went to Fashionista. Um, and the idea of when they hired me was to kind of take a little more business reporting. They had the kind of gossip and industry player stuff covered, but they wanted someone with a bit more business background. And that was a really fun job. I probably should have stayed at it longer than I did. But, you know, Condé Nast came calling. Lucky Magazine was the shopping magazine. I had always just been a really big fan of it. And I liked the editor who was there at the time, this woman, Brandon Holly. She was smart and really down to earth. And I just thought, you know what, I might as well try. Also, it was way more money. <laughs> so I was like, I might as well just take this job as running this website for this magazine and then literally three days into it I thought this is not the right job for me I decided I would stay for about a year 
saved up money for six months, quit, went freelance. My One of my first bylines or my first byline was a business of fashion. I had known Imran all the way from when I worked at Forbes and I started just writing for every single place I could. It was super fun. I, I had bylines in the New York Times. I even had, I did a piece for the New Yorker's website though. I don't want to sound oversell it um and but also was writing a lot for the wall street journal and started writing a ton for business of fashion and that had sort of emerged as an alternative to wwd but also a different kind of trade reporting where you do a lot of analysis and reporting and it just felt elevated and i i loved it and then 2015 i signed a contract with bof and went full-time with them in 2016 and i was the first employee in the u.s and we you know, I went, I, the first piece I wrote for them in 2013, there were six people. And by the time I left in 2023, there were, you know, well over a hundred huge staff. And it was really fun to be a part of that. I love early stage startup. Um, and then, you know, at the end of 2023, this opportunity with Puck kind of came out of nowhere. And I was a huge fan of what they were doing I had I became a subscriber pre- pretty early and had reached out to someone I know there and said, if you all decide you want to do fashion, I just want to be in the conversation. I just felt like my voice and uh, their approach to reporting was similar to the kind of thing I wanted to be doing next. So I left at the end of 2023, worked on this book that I'm co-writing about Victoria's Secret for a few months and started, is, is this 20? I left at the end of 2022, sorry. And, st- and started in March 2023 at Puck. I'm going to ask you more questions about the Victoria's Secret book yeah. and your career at Puck later. One more question I want to ask you before we move on to the next piece is, this morning you said you had a source meeting. Uh, you're yeah. someone who, you work with a lot of industry in- insiders. I mean, I called it piping hot tea in the, yeah. <laughs> in the intro. But, you know, uh, really sort of verified news about what's happening, what's probably going to happen in the fashion industry. Um, how do you build up that network of sources? And secondly, you're someone who's really brave and as I said, you tell it like it is. How do you get that sort of the guts to tell it like it is in an industry where you want to keep relationships and you want to keep people sweet? Yeah, I my approach has been, in terms of that stuff, is just I always try to be nice and try to tell people, give people a heads. I don't it's not like I tell show people a story or give them like specific details, but I fact check stuff and I say, look, like this is what the story is going to be about. Do you have comment? I always ask people for comment or I just, I like to give people's people a heads up. I don't like doing gotcha mm-hmm. pieces. Um, and so I want them to be ready for it. And the, there's a way you do that in journalism where you're protecting yourself and protecting your sources and, all of that without divulging too much, but also being fair. I want everyone to feel like I'm fair. And they don't always feel that way. (laughs) Like, it doesn't always work out, and I'm often shocked by what people are upset about and what they're not upset about. Like, I'll worry about something, think, oh, I'm going to get a call about that one, and then a day later, someone's super upset about another thing. And so... It's interesting in that way. You just never know. It's so subjective. Everybody is, you have to remember everyone has their own agenda. And all I can do is like relay the information that I've been given by people who I trust and who I've known for a long time. And in terms of developing sources and building, I've just been always been really 
upfront about the fact that I want to do these more straightforward stories. And so, you know, the more you do that kind of work, the more people kind of come out and seek you out. And you have to, again, weigh, well, what is their agenda? And I'm always trying to get every single side to it. It's hard. I'm I'm not going to make everybody happy. But also, there are a lot of people who do make everyone happy. So I think it's appreciated that there's someone who is trying to tell the whole story. Because I just personally think that if you, if the only information about you that's public is totally positive, and that's not the whole story, it's not going to resonate with the consumer or whatever. Right now, there's a real push towards let's just all we want is for people to kind of regurgitate the press release and I don't think that really does anyone any favors mm. no I mean I agree with you which is obviously why I'm here <laughs> <laughs> um so let's move on to your next piece uh because otherwise I'll, I'll spend hours yeah, asking you all the questions about your career so um this is the piece that reminds you of a high I picked this like double-breasted navy blazer from Band of Outsiders I think the lining is a ticker stripe and I went to the sample sale probably 2012 around um, with my friend Sid who is also who used to be a publicist now is a creator very famous on Instagram situations Band of Outsiders as a consumer was one of my favorite brands like I just loved it I love the concept I love the women's clothes it just reminded me of the kind of pure joy in consuming clothing and wearing clothing. It still looks so good. I wear it all the time. And, you know, that was over 10 years ago. Mm. In your sort of little blurb for this, you put, um, you know, it wasn't a seminal moment. It was just a sort of fun day. So in terms of the, I don't know, the split of like your work and leisure time, how do you sort of make sure that you're still having fun? Do you need to set boundaries in your life? I think in recent years, I've set more boundaries. And especially since I have a kid, he's two years old, I try on the weekends to only look at work stuff or work on work stuff for certain chunks of time. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think to me, going to parties, going to dinners, going to fashion shows and all that stuff, it's fun, but it's work. Mm -hmm. I don't see that as like my social life. I try really hard to have a social life outside of that. You know, I work out a lot like that's not a hobby. I, I think I told a therapist once that working out was a hobby and they were like no <laughs> it's not a hobby but I really love exercising and I do know I really try to keep a little bit of a distance now during crazy periods like I just got back from New York I was there around the Met Gala there were events every single night when I'm in Europe or New York for fashion weeks and things like that that is constant work and that's just for two weeks, that's all you're thinking about. But the rest of my life, and I think that's much easier here in LA where I only go out like probably two or three nights a week for work stuff. Whereas in New York, I was out every single night since I was 22 or whatever. And so, yeah, it, I do think that it's important to have some sort of separation. And also I do have find a lot of pleasure in, in shopping and clothing. And I think like, keeping that separate also from the work that I'm doing has also, in some ways it informs my work, but in other ways it's like, well, I'm still going to, even if I bought something and love it, I'm still going to write the kind of whole 360 view of that thing. Whereas 
I don't, I, the, one of the reasons I didn't like love working at that shopping magazine was I don't really want to write about my shopping. Mm. It's interesting though, I love, there are two things that you've mentioned on previous like podcasts um, that um, I found interesting and amusing. So the first is that, you know, you openly admit that you love shopping and that you spend a bit too much. Yeah, I mean, I, you say you spend I, too much money too much, on clothes yes. at sea, but um, I like it because it sort of shows that you have skin in the game. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Is that you are really passionate about fashion and you're also just, it's, you're not just wearing loads of free stuff. No, no, yeah. No, um, I'm, I mean, that ended a long time ago. <laughs> um, and the second one, when you first moved to LA, talking about exercise, yeah. how you didn't have a car, oh, and yeah. that you were racking up sort of oh, like yeah. 30,000 steps like 30, a day or I something. I was running to like, I would run, we were living in Silver Lake, I would like run to Los Feliz, go to the bookstore and walk home, and I was like, this is not pop. Because we also moved here in July 2020, so you didn't really want to get in an Uber at that time either. Yeah. So, yeah, I I mean, we got a car very quickly. <laughs> just made me laugh because that was literally me the first time I came to LA. I was like, yeah. I'm six foot one. I was born for walking. Yeah. Like, this is what I'm made for. <laughs> yeah, and then yeah. people look at you on the street and they're just... I, a couple of months ago, I walked from Hollywood to East Hollywood or whatever, and I just remember people just staring at me like, who is... What is this insane person doing? Yeah. Um... Just a last note on this item. So you mentioned you went to the sample sale with your friend Sid, who's a creator. I wanted to ask, you know, you have uh, worked in, I mean, you've always been at the forefront of sort of new fashion media, but still, you know, you've worked at these legacy titles. Yeah. Um, do you follow any creators? What do you think of, uh, you know, people, those fashion video essayists? Is there yeah. anyone that you really like? Um, there is one that I really like whose name I'm not going to remember. I think she's really smart. I mean, what I would say about it is I find the formatting and the the aesthetic style of those TikTok videos where the little head and then you see it, it really creeps me out. I don't like that. But yes, there is someone on TikTok who a friend of mine who's like on there 24 hours a day always sends me that I really like. I can't remember her name. But I like that. I think it's smart. And I, I am a big fan of all these like new critics and it's kind of like when we were blogging and people were in 2010 and people were weirded out by it. I think this new generation, there will authorities will kind of come out of that. And I think it's really smart. I am. And I, and I follow them as much as I can. TikTok has been, I do think it's an age thing, but I, cause I'm 40, but I also think it's just, it's taken me, I have an account, I look, I can't spend 30 minutes on there a day. But I have a lot of friends who are the same age as me who are obsessed with it. I think it is just, it's also a mindset thing. Like there are certain, like I was a, I was a very early Twitter person. And I'm still on there a lot for literally no reason. But um, I think like it, it's, a, the TikTok format has been tough for me to really get into. But oh, I, I don't remember that that one woman's name she's so good but I think yeah I'm you know person I'm interested in is the Alison Bornstein who is like offering fashion advice and she has this whole method you you come up with three words that uh, describe your style and then you use them to kind of inform what you buy and I don't totally buy into it but I think a lot of women or people need that and so she's helped and she also is a personal shopper for people so she's someone who I think is interesting what platform is she on she's on TikTok and Instagram um and she's also done like 
she's pretty mainstream like she's done a lot of collaborations with brands and things like that she's not an influencer she's definitely a personal shopper who is has this whole method and is sort of selling the method but I think she's a fascinating example of someone who's used those platforms in a really smart way I'm also really impressed by what Brian Boy has done like he was on Live Journal in 2004, and now he's a TikTok star. That's mm -hmm. very impressive. And I do think there's something to say about you kind of need to be willing to take the leap in the next thing. I, for me, I'm much more interested in podcasting than being live on TikTok or whatever. But, but yeah, there. it's funny. I've been trying to find like an influencer who I really like, mm -hmm. who I could follow and be obsessed with her clothes or their clothes but I haven't really found one recently I'm one a person that I love who's not a traditional influencer is like Miriam Nasir like mm -hmm. her clothing and her her way of life and her philosophy and her design she's a, a really talented designer as well I'm just a huge fan of hers but I follow her if she has like a lipstick on I will DM be like where did you get that yeah 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 <laughs> Um, so let's move on to your next piece. So this is the piece that reminds you of a low. So can you tell us what you've chosen for this one? So this was my high school lacrosse t-shirt that I've had forever that is so gross, but I've, I mean, I've had it for what, 20, 24 years or 22 years or something. But I, when I quit my job at Lucky and was freelancing, I kind of felt like that job got me off track a bit because it wasn't a reporting job. It wasn't the work I wanted to do and I was there for in total for a year and a half I like was there for a year saved up for six months after and then quit quit but um it, it was kind of a moment when I was I was like am I ever going to get to the point that I want to get to in my career or am I stuck what's what's going to happen and I started running a lot and it, I took up running at I don't know it was 30 or 32 or something and totally changed my life I was also listening to Mark Maron a lot which is super embarrassing I used to fast forward the intros but then I started listening the, to the intros and that also really inspired me because he was just constantly talking about his his challenges as a creative person I don't really think of myself as a creative person either I think of myself as like a doer and some of that is creative I could have creative ideas but I'm not like a creative or an artist or whatever but so I started running and listening to Mark Maron at the same time on my runs and the running just like something clicked but yeah that t-shirt was when I first started running I was very adamant that I did not want real running gear or activewear and so I would just wear this like nasty t-shirt on my runs and finally when I started like doing half marathons or whatever then I got real workout clothes. It reminds me of this time and a lot of low times in my life, like a lot of high school, lacrosse was fine, but like, it's just, it's this shirt that, it's the only thing that's really left that has gone through all the like bad stuff with me. It's interesting because uh, certainly from mine and I'm sure a lot of other people's perspectives you seem someone who's so assured you know your career feels so decisive um, your beat feels so clear yeah can you describe like 
how you felt in that moment where you were sort of floundering and, and those steps that you took to come out of it and what those like pivotal moments to come back to the more consistent place you're at now. Yeah, the only job that I've ever taken because of money was that job at Lucky. And it was also because I wanted the validation that I like could get a job at one of those magazines. But I probably shouldn't have taken that job. Like I probably should have stayed at Fashionista for two more years and then then gone freelance or whatever. It was interesting because I got to see how Condé Nast worked, so it was valuable in that way. And I don't know, it was it was fine, but it got me off track for a little bit. I think everybody feels that stuckness. It, I've I've felt it at different times in my life. Twenty nineteen, I felt so stuck. I was like, we we tried to buy an apartment in New York and it didn't work out for this insane reason. We tried. We were trying to have a kid and I couldn't get pregnant. We were trying to do all this stuff and I was like, why isn't my life moving? And I'm really lucky. I have an amazing partner who I've been with since we were, I don't know, 24 or so. And we're best friends and love each other and good to each other and are life partners. And I'm really lucky that that's super stable. And at that time, work was super stable for me too. But um, yeah, I just felt really like I needed to move forward on things and... I couldn't, and then just suddenly overnight, we moved to LA, we bought a house, I got pregnant, I learned to drive for the first time, I was 38 years old, like all these things happened within the matter of two or three months, and I think there's always another bend in the road, and you have to believe that. I, I live by a lot of cliches, but I do believe that, like things always turn a corner, and you kind of just have to trust it which is really hard, especially for like an overachiever or someone who wants to plan. I want to plan everything ahead. Um, but I, the, the 2013 version of that was like, how am I going to get back on the path where I'm like a respected reporter? I've just been running the shopping website of this magazine that's about to fold for a year and a half. And I just did it by work. Like it always comes back to you kind of just have to trust that it's going to be okay if you put in that time and, and hours to make it okay. And that was the first time in my life also when I went freelance that I had the financial security to do that. Like I saved up for that time, but also I believed that I could like hustle to make the income. And I ended up, my first year of freelancing, I made more than I had as a full-time editor. And so, I mean, I didn't sleep a lot, <laughs> but it was possible and I realized, oh, I'm never gonna have to worry about making rent. Because, like, that was a huge issue for me growing up. Like, were we going to be able to make rent? Were we going to be able to, like, buy groceries some weeks? Like, not usually, but there were times when it was like that. And, like, my living in that survival mode, getting out of that has been hard. And I still live in it sometimes. But there is that sense of, like, if you just keep at it, you will have breakthroughs and and I have I it's just happened to me so many times in my life that I believe in now and it's easier for me to trust that process mm -hmm. well thank you for being so open it's very yeah. inspiring I think um particularly I imagine like a lot of people who have been experiencing like mass layoffs and they're wondering what they're yes. going to do next um let's go from a low back to a high so this is the piece that reminds you of a great party so um for this you said that oh, yes 
Chantal Fernandez, your former colleague at BOF and the co-author of the book you're writing about Victoria's Secret. Her wedding was postponed at least once because of the pandemic and you dreamed of wearing a particular dress from Loewe, um, which my boyfriend calls Loewe, um, <laughs> and I did too for a while, with giant white duchess satin sleeves. And you said it was very expensive and sold out in your size, but by the time the wedding rolled around, you'd found it on the real reel for a quarter of the price with tags. So yeah, yeah so uh, I guess that kind of describes the item. Tell us a bit about your relationship with Chantal. Um, I mean, it's one thing to work alongside someone, but then to commit to writing a book with them. Yeah. What makes that relationship so symbiotic? And Chantal and I overlapped at a, we basically worked at all the same different publications. She worked at Lucky, she worked at Fashionista, but we never worked together. And then when I was freelancing and still doing a lot of work for Fashionista, she was there and we just started, I think there was a week that I like helped out the editor cause she was on vacation. So I was like, there was an issue with some story that Chantal had written and I helped her through it to deal with like the, the blowback from the story. And I just really liked her. She was really responsible and smart and had her shit together. She was there for six of the seven years I was at BOF. We had worked on a couple of Victoria's Secret stories together and then she had talked to one of my sources for something else and she called me after and she said, you know, I really think this would be a great book. You should do a book. And I said, well, why don't we do it together? I've had a lot of great work partners, including my husband, who was my work husband before he was my actual husband. But Chantal is the one who is just someone that I could work with for the rest of my life. And it's been fun, but it was also so fun to celebrate her wedding and... Um, yeah, it's just nice when you develop those kinds of relationships within the office where it's super, completely built on mutual respect and you can lift each other up along the way. And in terms of your party personality, are you someone that loves to go out and party? No. Um, do you like to dance? <laughs> no, I used to, when I lived in London, I used to go dancing like every single night. I used to go to this indie, these indie nights I don't even remember. One was called Candy Box. Mm -hmm. Like, I remember the Kills playing and going to see them. This is probably 2005 or 2006. It was very indie, Pete Doherty, yeah. like that era of London. OG um, indie sleaze. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like, I definitely had a mullet that I used to get in to this hairdresser in Spitafields. Yeah, it was super fun. I had a great time when I lived in London. So let's move on to your next piece. So this is the piece that makes you feel a part of something. And um, for this one, you chose your red puck cap. Tell us a bit more about puck. I mean, I'm sure I wasn't alone in feeling uh, shocked at your departure yeah. from BOF <laughs> and then worrying that maybe you'd taken some like faceless tech no, job no, no. or something and was so delighted when um, I heard about your move. Yeah, first of all, I love the hat. It's like very good merch and I would not wear it if it wasn't. So it's nice that I can like wear it around. I do feel like little bit of a company man, but it's it's really nice. I think Puck launched in 2020, like right around the time I had, or 2021, right around the time I had my kid. And so I had more time to read. I became interested in it really, really quickly and just thought, oh, this is a good format. This is a good way to engage really smart journalists, give them a platform, but also not dumb it down and just make it fun and interesting. Like I'm just interested in outlets and publications that are entertaining and that do good responsible journalism, but in a fun way. It's exciting to be at a place where 
it feels like things are going right. And that's the same thing that business of fashion. I was like, oh, this is the future. So I'd say like my main goal as a reporter has always been to kind of try to give fashion the same gravitas that a lot of other creative mediums have in terms of how they're reported on. Like whether you're talking about like the music industry or the film industry or fashion doesn't sort of get that same treatment. Mm. Like these are huge. LVMH is the biggest company in Europe. And so it's getting a little bit more of the credit or the attention is a better word it deserves now. And I think one of the reasons it didn't was because it's a thing that people associate with women. Mm. I think it's great because I think that, um, uh, you know, there are a lot of people that they are interested in fashion, they love buying clothes. And I certainly feel like these big companies have so much power that they make you want something you don't really want. And that's yeah. how you end up with waste. And that's how you end up, you know, constantly wanting new things. And you, your newsletter allows people to understand like why they're wanting, you know, the sort of business behind why they're wanting to buy something yeah. and make more informed choices about what they buy as well as just being fun and sort yeah. of full of a little bit of gossip and like, you know, a little bit of what might happen next and what's going on. Yeah. Um, how do you decide what to write about? each week because surely there must be so many things oh my God, that you want to write about <laughs> I'm sorry it's been so long I'm trying to make it shorter I've just been following my gut I'm just obsessed with good brands and interesting brands so I've, I'm trying to do like a mix every week of you know one thing for the luxury industry people one thing for people who are a little bit more broad and more interested in retail in general one thing for like publishing mm. well it's nice to feel like relish in your writing yeah. of like um, having so much to talk about and wanting to like tell us yeah, readers about really it. Yeah, it's really fun. So we're on to your penultimate piece. Um, so this is the piece that makes you feel sexy. Yeah, I feel very <laughs> uncomfortable with this question. That's why I quite like this one because everyone's a bit sort of squirmy. <laughs> tell us what you've chosen for it and then I can ask you questions more broadly. What did I say? I don't remember. So you chose um, the gold Sherman Field oh, chain yeah. that your husband got for you yes. for your 10 okay, year anniversary. Fine. I just feel good in it. Like if you're comfortable, that's when you look sexy. So this necklace makes me feel comfortable and what about we'll move on to sort of sexy and fashion more generally yeah. they always say like sex sells um what does that look like in fashion at the moment it's so interesting because for a long time I feel like in the in the U.S. the culture has become much more conservative in the last 20 years and so the sex in marketing has also just really been dialed back and it doesn't feel as like if you think of someone who who is a sex symbol, like if Kim Kardashian is a sex symbol, like it's such a manufactured idea of sexiness that there's nothing like carnal about it. Mm. And I think in post-pandemic, like people coming out of the fever dream of the pandemic, that sexiness has been restored a bit and like people look a little bit messier and a little bit more like in the middle of it. But I think like, I think a lot of, because everything feels very sterile right now, and maybe a little less so than it did pre-pandemic, but I do think, and I think, like, it's interesting because one of the big themes of the Victoria's Secret book is, like, every generation of executive at that company would ask, what is sexy now? And they used to even use that tagline, like, what is sexy now? And I have a piece coming out today about Victoria's Secret and what they're trying to do, and I think, like, if you look at something like Parade mm -hmm. or or Skims, but I think really Parade, like to me what, what Cami is doing there, and it's a direct-to-consumer underwear startup, it feels very raw, and it that seems to be like the new modes of sexy, like 
really folk like the body image stuff that she does like the way she approaches gender it doesn't feel sterile it doesn't feel put on it feels like real and that is I think she's done one she's done a better job than most at marketing like new ideas of what sexy is in this totally changed culture um but I think generally I don't think <laughs> I don't think most fashion is very sexy it's like so it's so marketed now that it's hard to like get that feeling I feel like sometimes a bit of the mystery is missing. Yes. Um, because everything is so carefully controlled. And I've always, I've found it quite ironic over the last few years looking at how fashion has um, often adopted like the aesthetics, fetish and bondage and vinyl totally. and things. But then it feels like deeply unerotic um, in its delivery because it's so controlled. We're up to your last piece. This is the one that got away. So oh, yes. what did you choose for this? I picked this Yves Saint Laurent. I'm sure it was... Reeve Gosher, however you say that. But um, it was a Yves Saint Laurent double-breasted gray blazer that I got at, like, a charity shop in San Francisco. Ugh, it would, have, it would have been 2009, I think, or 2008. And I, pr I definitely paid under 100 bucks for it. It was probably like 60. It might have been 40 bucks. It was 80, something like that. Um, and I wore it a lot. And then I just stopped and I thought, oh, I really should get rid of this. And I really wish I hadn't. So it's a really nice piece. And I love jackets and blazers and I love gray and I love, I don't know. I just, I would have worn it a ton over the years. And I don't know why I got rid of it. It just seems like a dumb thing for me to do. And I'm pretty good. I really wear all of my clothes and I do, I do sell a lot of stuff, but like I have stuff from, 15 years ago that I still wear on a, on a frequent basis, including that Chanel bag. I'm gonna finish with a couple of quick fire questions. What's currently on your wish list? Um, so many things. Mostly white jeans and new sandals for summer. And what's something you'd never wear and why? I've always said Uggs, it's just not, it's not gonna happen for me. It's not even because of the way they look. I just think there's no ankle support. It's just a lot. There's nothing about them that seems helpful to me in any way. So it's always been Uggs for me. And what do you think, in short, makes a designer great? At this point in the industry, I think understanding who your customer is and being able to like apply your creative talents to like giving that customer something interesting. Your customer may be 25 people a year and you might just do custom stuff or it's, you know, 10 million people a year, but like that's the talent now is really understanding that relationship with the customer, which I know is like a very, very marketing gross thing for people who are obsessed with just like creativity and fashion, but fashion is basically a marketing business now, so. But that's also kind of how you get loads of clothes that don't fit that you yeah. can never wear, so. True. Um, what's one piece you'd love to write right now? My God, there's so many. One, one thing I would love to write, I would love to look um, more closely at the business of Chanel post Karl Lagerfeld. And who's someone you'd love to interview? Oh my, oh, there's so many. I would really love to interview Giorgio Armani. He has, I've done like email interviews with him, which is not something I typically do, but he, he 
we I we allowed it once when I was at BOF and he did a great job with it. But uh, my old colleague Tim Blanks did an incredible profile of him last fall that I recommend for everyone, and we actually did a podcast about it together. Um, but he's very smart and frank, and he started his business when he was forty. He ne- has never sold it, and yeah, I I would just. I think like talking to someone like that would be very fascinating. I still think there's a lot to learn about that ge- from that generation of creative people and executives that think the the goal is always to like hear what the new talent have to say and I think that's important, but there is a lot that's like been forgotten or never brought up with those people that te- could teach us a lot about like how the industry should work moving forward. Mm. And lastly, what's your plan for the rest of the day? I'm going to finish my column and um, talk to someone on the phone and then play with my kid. (laughs) Nice. Lauren, thank you so much for being a guest on Threads of Conversation. Thanks for having me. It was so fun. You can find a link to the accompanying newsletter in the show notes, where you'll find pictures of some of Lauren's chosen items and links to her work. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe and leave a rating, preferably five stars. (laughs) 